Welcome to Cato Audio for July 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Cato's Clark Neely and Jay Schweiker discuss the importance of challenging what's known as qualified immunity for public officials. We go back to 2014, where Walter Olson describes the realities of militarized police. Sociologist Fabio Rojas discusses what matters for protesters who want lasting victories. Cato's Mustafa Akiol remembers the lessons of the Gezi Park protests. Cato's Matthew Feeney provides a fact check to politicians and others still confused, and perhaps willfully so, about free speech on the internet. And Emily Chamley Wright of the Institute for Humane Studies discusses what university education might look like just a few months from now. At long last, the Supreme Court has punted on qualified immunity. The high court last month opted to accept no cases challenging the court-invented doctrine that, practically speaking, protects bad cops from the consequences of violating Americans' rights. Cato's Clark Neely and Jay Schweikert were broadly expecting the court to go the other way and accept at least one case. This conversation from the Cato Daily Podcast is Clark and Jay in happier times still holding out hope that this Supreme Court would soon accept a challenge to a policy that has contributed to so much pain. The Supreme Court has for months now uh, kicked the can down the road, uh, as you put it, Jay, and you feel like you're in sort of a Groundhog Day situation uh, where the Supreme Court uh, pledges to look at uh, qualified immunity cases and and make a a decision about whether or not they're going to take one. Uh, Let's bring everybody up to speed about the cases that they did examine and decided not to to, uh, hear. Sure. Well, there were eight qualified immunity cases that were considered at the conference on Thursday, May 28th. Uh, And this includes what are, in my view, the three most significant cases, which are the ones that are explicitly asking the court to reconsider qualified immunity entirely. And as far as we know, those cases did go to conference. The court did discuss them there. But when the orders from that conference came out on uh, Monday, June 1st, there were no decisions in any of those cases either way. And then, and then later in that day, we saw that all of those qualified immunity cases got rescheduled for consideration at the conference on Thursday, June 4th. So once again, we are seeing a continued delay and kicking the can down the road on these major qualified immunity cases that are raising this fundamental question of whether the doctrine itself needs to be reconsidered. Uh, Clark, to you, uh, there have been a lot of... Uh, <laughs> There's been a lot of action on Twitter. Uh, I'm in Louisville, Kentucky, where, as as you can imagine, things are very uh, tense between police and uh, communities. Uh, what does qualified immunity do to the relationship between communities and police? Well, qualified immunity is the cornerstone of our near zero accountability policy for law enforcement. The the outrage that we're seeing, I believe, is uh, largely uh, justified and largely in response to the correct perception that police are held to a vastly different standard than the rest of us. There really is um, a, a dual standard. Police um, are, are held to a much lower standard and uh, they get away with things routinely 
uh, rights violations um, and, and even uh, acts of violence like this. Um, some people understand that. Some people don't understand it, but it is an absolutely true fact. And again, uh, qualified immunity really is the cornerstone of this uh, policy of, of near zero accountability. Because why? Because it, it prevents people from using the most effective method of accountability available to them, which is a civil damages suit. The only other two options are to hope that a prosecutor brings charges, which they virtually never do unless there's a viral video, uh, as in the George Floyd case, um, or internal accountability mechanisms, which everybody basically understands are complete window dressing and, and ineffective. So if you can't bring a civil damages lawsuit, you're basically out of luck. And that's what qualified immunity does, is it prevents people from utilizing uh, that one potentially viable avenue of accountability. And they're angry about it, and they should be. We've, we've had this discussion before. Uh, about what the court might do, um, but let let's talk about let let's assume that the court does what uh, you and I hope they do, which is to scrap the entire doctrine. Um, what happens in the months and years that uh, follow? Well. What happens then is we go back to the congressionally chosen standard, which is um, a strict liability standard. Um, Section 1983, our main civil rights law, provides that a state actor shall be liable to the person injured for the deprivation of any rights. That's the language. Now, if it turns out that a strict liability standard is uh, problematic in some way, then what will happen is Congress will have an opportunity to revisit the issue and keep fine-tuning the statute uh, to essentially adjust it um, in light of, of new information uh, and outcomes. That is a much, much better approach uh, than simply having the Supreme Court, which is not supposed to be a policymaking body, uh, feel free to amend the legislatively enacted standard, which is exactly what they did when they invented qualified immunity, and then just leave it in place uh, for more than half a century, uh, even as it, it, it reveals itself to be utterly unworkable and unjust. So uh, we should go back to Congress's chosen standard, and if they want to tinker with it or fine tune it, uh, then that's their prerogative. But the Supreme Court should confine itself to simply interpreting the statute as written. And I'll also add to that, that um, you know, it's worth keeping in mind that even if we were to completely abolish qualified immunity tomorrow. Uh, most individual officers uh, who could who would be potentially subject to these lawsuits are going to be indemnified by their municipal employees or employers. Um, even today with qualified immunity, um, as uh, Joanna Schwartz, a UCLA law professor, has demonstrated, almost all officers are already indemnified. Um, so it's not the case that you would suddenly see officers subject to individually, personally ruinous judgments. You would see, uh, rather, indemnification and victims whose rights are violated getting the remedy that they deserve. Now, that in and of itself raises an important policy question about whether we're structuring indemnification the right way, whether it really should be as automatic as it seems to be, or whether there are better ways of, uh, of structuring that system. One idea that Clark and I have developed that we think is very promising is requiring police to carry insurance the same way that we require other professionals like doctors and lawyers to carry insurance. Even, even teachers often have to carry insurance. I mean, many, many professions except for law enforcement. And I think that there are lots of advantages to that. It ensures that there's always going to be uh, funds to cover a judgment so that the victim is compensated. Um, it, you know, it protects individual officers uh, from the, you know, what could be extraordinary litigation costs. Um, but it also means that over time, as you see, uh, it, it will price out of the market those uh, that minority of officers who routinely commit these kind of violations. 
Um, if you, you know, if you are, I mean, it's worth noting that um, Derek Chauvin, the, the officer who, who killed George Floyd, had, I believe, 18 complaints against him before this came up. Um, in, in a sensible world where we required officers to carry professional insurance and their premiums proportionately reflected their likelihood of committing uh, official misconduct, there's a good chance to think he would have been priced out of the market long before this happened. Um, so there's, there's an interesting policy discussion to be had there, but there's not going to be any incentive or need to have that until we get rid of qualified immunity. That, in our view, is the critical first step toward confronting the rest of these um, you know, admittedly complex policy problems. Clark? At the end of the day, I think we are at an inflection point and the um, Supreme Court and perhaps also Congress either will or will not recognize that the outrage that we're seeing spilling out into the streets right now is absolutely valid. I'm not defending the way in which it is sometimes expressed, but the outrage itself is absolutely valid because between them, between Congress and the Supreme Court, they really have created a near zero accountability policy for law enforcement. And the people upon whom that policy falls most unjustly, and in this case, most brutally, are perfectly aware of it, even if the rest of America isn't, and they have had enough. And it is time to change that policy. And right now, uh, the 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 branch that is in the position to do that is the Supreme Court, and they should do it. They have an obligation, a moral obligation, to end our policy of near zero accountability for law enforcement. Uh, you would hope, or you would imagine, that uh, many of the police officers who have been so demoralized by uh, the actions of the relatively few among them, who are in some cases actively seeking opportunities to engage in harm or uh, to potentially to kill, uh, you, you would hope that they would uh, appreciate or uh, be quietly supportive of an effort to, as quickly as possible, rid their departments of those people. Well, yes, and some of them are. Uh, we've actually had a, um, a law enforcement um, organization join this cross-ideological amicus brief that we came up for in the qualified immunity cases. Um, law enforcement action partnership. They've been wonderful. So it's, it is not the case that there's just this monolithic kind of um, blue line. There are some who absolutely get this and that get that this systematic infantilization of law enforcement by the judiciary constantly being told, oh, there's no way you could have known not to do that thing. Um, that does not benefit the the occupation does not benefit the institution of law enforcement at all. To the contrary, as you say, it really undermines their legitimacy uh, and undermines the the relationship between them and the communities that they have to police. It's time to end qualified immunity. One of the thing I just I would add in terms of you know the what people are on the streets are aware of is I, I think in the last you know we've been building momentum on the qualified issue, qualified immunity issue for several years now. And I think we've done a lot to raise the profile of the issue uh, among public policy groups and academics and lawyers of all stripes. But in the last week, this issue has really been galvanized. And, you know, protesters on the street are aware of it. I have seen uh, pictures on Twitter of people at protests with signs saying abolish qualified immunity. Uh, so the doctrine that maybe 10 years ago would have been to most people, a kind of uh, arcane piece of legal minutiae, um, you know, protesters and, you know, citizens of all stripes at this point are now becoming aware of the direct connection between this doctrine and the violence done to George Floyd and the turmoil that we've seen as a result of it. 
Um, so it, it is with a it is with a grim satisfaction that I've observed that people are correctly uh, laying blame on the Supreme Court and on this doctrine for the situation that we're currently in. Clark Neely is vice president for criminal justice at the Cato Institute, and Jay Schweikert is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. response to protests of the deaths of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Breonna Taylor in Louisville, and so many other Americans killed by police, we've seen some of the special military equipment that police have either purchased or just been handed by the federal government. And yet it seems like this happens every few years. This conversation with Cato's Walter Olson is from 2014 and drills down on the reality of militarized police. What we're seeing out of Ferguson, Missouri is shocking. It doesn't look like the United States. And people see it and they wonder why are armored vehicles going through um, a town just outside St. Louis? Uh, Why are police dressed in camouflage when uh, this is not the desert? This is uh, a landscape of convenience stores and gas stations. Why uh, the sharpshooters, why the uh, immediately classic photo of a protester, I think, waving a sign with uh, the telltale red dot of a laser pointer um, on uh, his or her chest from a sharpshooter just having fun, I guess, or thinking of um, aiming at them. Now, first thing I ever heard about gun safety was uh, don't point a gun at someone unless you would be willing to pull the trigger and shoot them. And yet uh, everyone saw from Ferguson the uh, police, uh, including ones mounted on top of vehicles, uh, aiming at uh, the people who were just protesting. Now, uh, there's so much to unpack there. There's so many different um, police mistakes uh, in the Michael Brown case. But the Militarization is the background, and it is something that's not just Ferguson. It's not just um, a relatively poor um, uh, inner suburb. It is across the country. It is um, rural counties that have hardly any crime. It is affluent towns like Redwood City, California, uh, filled with Silicon Valley workers. Uh, All these police departments are arming themselves with what would be seen normally as warlike materials and equipment. And so it's, this has brought it onto the front pages, but we've been waiting for something like this to happen because with all that uh, military gear out there, uh, it was inevitable that they'd start using it. A whole lot of this is being driven by the federal government. A huge amount is being driven by the federal government. And again, people don't realize that until they begin looking at the programs, most of them started or ramped up after 9-11, in which uh, billions and billions of dollars uh, of military-grade equipment have been dropped on America's local uh, police forces. Now, you have uh, just in one program, 
uh, the military surplus program from the Pentagon, uh, last year alone, $449 million worth of surplus military equipment was uh, presented to uh, local police forces. And that's just one program. Homeland Security has its own completely separate and extremely large uh, grant program, uh, for, which helps them buy new equipment as opposed to surplus used equipment. And uh, there are yet others. Stimulus paid for some of it. And so what you get is a sudden set of new incentives where there seems to be all this free stuff out there. Now, it's interesting to note what kind of free stuff it is because they don't usually set up federal programs to simply replace things you were going to spend money on anyway. So you know, every police force has all of these routine expenditures on things they've always spent money on. That's not what the federal government wants to pay for. It wants to pay for something that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And what better for something you wouldn't have gotten otherwise than a flashy toy uh, or something that the Congressman can point to because it's a, um, a helicopter. People wonder what kind of gear, and it includes everything from the now famous armored vehicles, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these armored vehicles have been uh, given out lately. Uh, they are mine-resistant armored vehicles, and I have yet to hear of a single instance in which landmines were a threat to an American urban police force, uh, which are also... Uh, some people may be relieved to hear, uh, protective against radiation. Again, I have not heard of a radiation threat uh, in a typical American police uh, scene. And so you've got these vehicles, you've got um, uh, you know, rifle sights for sharpshooting, you've got body armor, you've got silencers. I'm still trying to figure out what legitimate reason a local police force would have to get silencers. Uh, and you've got grenade launchers. Now, when you think of a police department using grenade launchers, the only instance I can think of where that might have come into play was when the Philadelphia police force took down an entire city block when uh, the move people were, were barricaded. But I can't think of an instance where grenade launchers would be on hand where people feel good about, oh, yes, that's just what we wanted the local police force to do. Certainly, Situations that uh, uh, <clears throat> tend to get talked of on the floor of Congress when people are uh, passing these subsidy programs, uh, overwhelmingly, it's a combination of homeland security. Uh, you know, what would you, there, what would we do if there were a terrorist incident uh, in Cedar Rapids uh, and school shootings? Uh, after all, school shootings are terrible. Shouldn't they have some way? Now, lack of police weaponry has not typically been the problem in bringing a school shooting to an end. Uh, yeah, there isn't a reason to think that um, uh, it would make a whole lot of difference to have different uniforms for the cops or uh, d different sorts of uh, uh, body armor. But the these are the things that push people's buttons. And they, uh, we know, of course, that uh, the terrorist threat uh, has not panned out in the, the way that it was widely predicted to. Uh, and you'd think that that would lead to second thoughts about the program. Why are we still shipping huge amounts of armament as if there were about to be Beslan-like takeovers of buildings with hundreds of people in them, like the Moscow Theater or something? That doesn't happen. So presumably we can save ourselves uh, the money, and, and of course, it's more than just a money cost of arming ourselves as if they did happen. There is this uh, this other element specifically with respect to Ferguson, but it is a, it is a problem elsewhere, which is 
uh, reporters who are merely attempting to document what's going on are either uh, arrested or, in, in the case of some Al Jazeera America journalists, hit with tear gas and then have their equipment uh, disassembled when they run away. It has been a real education for people how uh, the press has been treated so shabbily in Ferguson. Um, nearly everyone realizes that if they're willing to do this to the press, uh, then they're probably not afraid to do that to some uh, obscure citizen uh, when no one is looking. But you've had reporters for the Huffington Post and Washington Post arrested. You've had uh, the alderman who was the leading Twitter source of information for people, an alderman from St. Louis. Uh, he was arrested uh, and uh, eventually released. And the reasons, when they give the reasons at all, they are somewhat puzzling reasons, like um, uh, it, the, the police felt that this area should be cleared. Well, okay, that... Uh, <laughs> that explains the police's thinking, but it doesn't necessarily explain the legality of um, why were so many uh, commands seemingly issued to stop filming. Uh, there has been some court testing of what is believed to be the right to film, but you know, even without having to go to court, you can think of what the First Amendment is for and the tremendous importance on a practical level of being able to have citizens filming uh, what are often going to be uh, tremendously important news events with um, long-term impact uh, if, uh, as the police seem to want, not just in Ferguson, but in many other situations around the country, uh, if the police believe that they can simply order people to stop filming, um, we will have no record of what they do. There is sort of a, a, a disconnect here between keeping the peace and maintaining total control over a specific geographic area. And that, that seems to have been, uh, that line has been, seems to have been completely erased. It is more of a military c concept uh, that you must completely control an area and pacify it. And it is more of a traditional policing concept that you identify what risks there are and let life uh, go back to normal as as much as possible um, uh, while you're chasing the bad guys as opposed to controlling the territory. And so much of the Ferguson outrage has been from these uh, clumsy at best uh, and you could say worse things, crowd control techniques, whether it be telling people that they may not legally walk on the streets or whether it's uh, lobbing tear gas into their front yards, uh, dramatic confrontations in which residents of Ferguson said, <laughs> I, when asked to disperse, I'm in my front yard. I, this is my own property. I live here. And the answer they got was tear gas, uh, specifically aimed at them. That's called to mind for a lot of people, military tactics. And part of the irony here is that if you talk to actual uh, military people who've been in Iraq and other war zones recently, uh, I hear again and again variations on the theme of uh, I was in a war zone and they were not armed anywhere nearly that heavily and they treated people with more respect. If you are an actual army of occupation, the irony is you will probably be given very professional uh, training, and you will probably be told to uh, calm things down so that the civilians can trust and like you if possible. This is an issue where libertarians took the lead and have been at the forefront for many years. 
Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. If protesters care about translating their righteous anger into policy wins and better relations between police and the people they're supposed to protect and serve, it's important to keep in mind that violence, however justified, isn't a particularly effective tactic for getting things done. Indiana University sociologist Fabio Rojas spoke with me last month about his years of study of protest movements and which movements got more of what they wanted and why. When it comes to what, it's not inevitable, but it, it's, it sometimes seems that way, that these things break down, that bad actors on both sides then are able to essentially capture public attention. And for, for people watching, they're going to be more attuned to the bad behavior of people on the side that they perceive themselves largely being against. If you're broadly skeptical of uh, police conduct, then you're going to see bad actions by police and you're going to say, yep, well, that makes sense to me. And uh, on the flip side, people who are broadly skeptical of of protest, uh, people who are broadly skeptical of uh, or view uh, protesters more broadly as having maybe a, a, a less than pure motives, uh, you're going to see the bad action, the looting um, and uh, associated property damage. And you're going to say, yep, that's, that's, what, that's what these people are like. This is why uh, leadership is extremely important for both activists and police departments. And uh, let me give you an example from the civil rights movement. Uh, one of the main um, uh, ideological bedrocks of the classical civil rights movement was an insistence on nonviolence. And they understood that they went to the South, they could get murdered. They understood that if they went on a free to ride, they might not come back. Yet the civil rights movement made it very clear from the beginning that shooting back and uh, harming other people was not the way they were going to deal with uh, violence. And there it was a very similar issue where the people who committed violence were often community leaders in the South. Sometimes they were part of law enforcement. Uh, there's a document called Spies of Mississippi which describes this kind of vast, elaborate system of repression that the Mississippi state government had set up in order to target civil rights activists. So in the civil rights era, it was no joke. You know, people did die. They were severely injured in many cases. Many of them did not come back. But there was uh, a great emphasis placed by the civil rights leadership to say, okay, we're going to train you for this. We're going to show you that if you look like you might be injured, this is what you should do. If somebody hurts you, this is what you're allowed to do. And they would have these training sessions and training camps and activism schools where they would train people so that they would reduce the chance that something really spiraled out of control. The same thing has to happen on, also on the side of law enforcement. They also have their own training. And apparently the training is not as effective as it could be. It may be failing. Maybe some police departments never went through it. Um, but what has to happen on the side of uh, police departments is they ought to also say, look, there are going to be people who are bad guys. Um, and if you see somebody throwing a bowling ball through a window or a brick through a window, uh, that's clearly actionable. 
uh, that probably does that does not deserve uh, lethal, lethal force. You're you're allowed to restrain that person uh, with the least uh, damage possible. Uh, but apparently that's broken down, and uh, it's hard to tell what's fact from uh, the fog of war uh, through social media. But you know, people are circulating uh, film clips of, um, for example, a police cruiser in Brooklyn literally driving through a crowd of uh, protesters. Um, there is, uh, I think in your neck of the woods in Kentucky, there was a journalist who I think was shot with a rubber bullet and, uh, in the days to come, we'll get more context on whether those were accurate depictions of those events. But regardless, you know, it is on the shoulders of the police to say, I know beforehand I'm going to be in danger. So uh, we're also seeing some things on, on, you know, on the flip side, we're seeing a few police departments essentially, uh, taking off their armor. Uh, walking with protesters, trying to ingratiate themselves with uh, this movement and trying, it appears earnestly trying to understand what the grievances are. Uh, we're also seeing, uh, at least in Washington, D.C., uh, one video I saw circulated of a guy who was uh, essentially trying to chop up, chop up the sidewalk and uh, other protesters grabbing him and handing him over to the police. Right. And, you know, what you're going to see is um, we have a lot of protests in a lot of different cities and local conditions matter. So if you're in a police, you're in an area where the police department is a very combative um, stance towards the community, you're going to see a lot of bad incidents where people are going to be harmed or killed. If you're in a place where the police department has taken the effort to say, okay, I'm going to reach out and I'm going to really try to understand people, try to understand people. Uh, then that's going to give you a different result, right? Uh, if you're in a community where people see themselves as the uh, caretakers of law and order, right, where they say, I can step in, and if I see somebody uh, torching a car, I can say, stop that. Don't do that. And these local conditions that you're talking about matter. And uh, you used the word uh, ingratiate. Uh, I'm not sure if that was the word you intended to use, but I want to push back just a little bit there to say uh, maybe it's a, a, we should uh, think it, Think about it as a search for understanding that police officers can actually sit down and they can search for understanding. And uh, I can say from personal experience that the last couple of years, uh, you know, people have called the, the police on me twice in my own neighborhood. Uh, I'm, I, I don't think I'm threatening. I'm a tenured professor. I have gray hair. But yet my neighbors thought it was wise to call the police on me twice, in fact. And in fact, I wrote about one of those incidents on my personal blog. Uh, but, you know, I think what's really great is when a police officer says, what's your experience? You know, uh, we definitely want to get the bad guys, the people who may be stealing your cars or, you know, doing more horrible things. But, you know, why is it that uh, people are just walking around minding their own business and their neighbors call the police on them? And when the police take the effort to do that, uh, I think we should applaud that and we should encourage that and we should further the dialogue. So uh, there are institutional uh impediments to either getting that kind of dialogue. Some of them are just laws. Uh, some of them are uh, l admitting liability, uh, especially for police departments. Uh, what are some of the things that you identify that, that are, I guess, keeping, keeping us separate in a way that uh, we you know, naturally shouldn't be? 
Right. And uh, that's a really great uh, question. And so the question boils down to what is the relationship between police departments and the rest of society? What is that relationship like? And uh, there are a couple of things to keep in mind, which is over time, police departments have increased in budget and size compared to, say, 50 or 100 years ago. They have more power than they used to have. Uh, so the courts and the federal governments have given local police uh, departments more power than they've had before. Uh, given what happened, uh, you know, uh, in cases like Aaron Garner, Tamir Rice, or or, uh, or George Floyd, you know, questions about uh, qualified immunity, like legal doctrines that really enable police uh, to be on a separate pedestal than the rest of us. There's also culture. We can also ask, you know, culturally, when people join police departments, what do they believe the rest of the world to be like? So, for example, in some circles, people say things there's like there's a war on police. I always find this puzzling, uh, in the, not because policing is not dangerous. Policing is clearly dangerous. However, uh, you know, most people I know like the police. They respect the police. Maybe they think they're maybe they think they're uh, there might be a, too big of a budget for them, or there are too many police. But nobody has uh, very few people have ill will towards the police per se. Um, so uh, there's a cultural thing that happens where uh, some people in law enforcement really do believe they're in a combative stance with the rest of the community. And then we could also think about formal institutions. So for example, uh, one uh, common uh, reform proposal that's often floated is to have more uh, you know, community-oriented uh, interactions with police where there might be boards or uh, a regularized place where people can come and meet and talk to the police and meet them face-to-face. Uh, that's supposed to have an informal effect where people, once you get to know somebody as a person, you don't see them as a victim or as a target anymore, but also it could be more formal in the sense of, okay, there's a place where I can go to, to talk about the police and complain about them. That's not the police department. And so I think, uh, you know, if you were to randomly pick a, a police department in the country, randomly pick an officer, they're probably an okay person who does a, a fine job. But, um, Definitely, when you have a lot of these issues where uh, there is a, a skeptical attitude towards uh, the population, uh, sometimes you'll see news reports about people with very bad uh, attitudes towards minorities seeking out jobs in law enforcement. You'll see cases uh, where police officers are hired and rehired even after they have a, a series of complaints lodged against them that are very plausible complaints. All these things build up in a crew over time. And that creates a shift and that starts creating that barrier between law enforcement and the rest of society. There are hundreds of millions of Americans who uh, I assume have watched uh, these events unfold in many cities and have have thought to themselves, look, there's there are clearly some problems here on, on both sides. Um, it's kind of weird to think that the, the, the most sane voice on all of this so far that I've heard speak at length is killer Mike. Um, but when, when you, uh, you know, observe all this and the, this, the, what seem to be intractable, uh, problems that have been so consistent over so many years, uh, with respect to protest and police abuse, um, what do you think if there is a solution, what do you think it is? Well, I may be a little bit more optimistic than you. Uh, because when I look at history, there are lots of problems that seemed impossible or intractable. Uh, in American history, you know, probably our worst problem was slavery, uh, and uh, that that was uh, solved. Um, it, it was solved in a very painful way through the Civil War, but was solved. 
We also had Jim Crow and segregation. Thankfully, that was solved without quite the loss of life that we had during the Civil War. Uh, we can look across the world at apartheid, communism, socialism, and we see that those systems change. Uh, They're not forever. So uh, the first thing I would do is think about vision. And it may sound like a platitude or an empty statement, but that's not the case. All things that change start with a vision. But then the next step is to really think concretely about exactly how to translate that vision into what you can actually do. And of course, most of us are not going to become social activists. Uh, that's not something that most people are going to do. We have our everyday lives. But there are uh, lots of simple things that people could do. So, for example, if you um, you know see your um, local police department doing something bad, call your city councilman and complain. To say, on the street the other day, I saw something that I thought was uh, very poor, very poor behavior. Or if you see a police officer treating somebody extremely well, praise that. You know, encourage good behavior and bad behavior. Then a smaller number of us may decide that social activism is something we want to do. And then we would uh, open dialogues with police departments. And that's one of the things that I think uh, was very valuable about Black Lives Matter when it appeared on the scene about six years ago, which is in a number of cities, they have actually tried to um, open up discussions with police departments um, in order to really actually get real policies. And they're not going to they're not going to change everything overnight, but this is how change happens. Little by little, you just go to city by city, police department by police department and say, look, here's a concrete issue. What are you going to do? What can you do? And it's not glamorous. You're not going to get on TV. Uh, you're not going to get a million followers on Twitter, but you can make your town or your neighborhood a little bit better by reaching out. Fabio Rojas is a sociologist at Indiana University. When the Cato Institute's Mustafa Akiol watches protests unfold in the United States, he's reminded of a similar time in Turkey. The protests were simply known as Gezi Park protests, and they didn't exactly work out as the protesters would have hoped. He believes there are clear lessons for protesters in the United States. What is going on uh, in Minneapolis, in Louisville, in cities uh, across the United States in response to uh, violence perpetrated by police, um, largely against either unarmed people or uh, people uh, where police did not have a justifiable cause of action. This is uh, nominally the reason why people are out there uh, protesting. Um, you saw something similar in Turkey seven years ago. You were there for it. So describe to me what was Gezi Park? Well, the Gezi Park protests, as they're called in Turkey, was probably the biggest social protest movement in the history of Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And uh, it was, again, a reaction to a police action, uh, some excess, some wrongdoing of the police. And it just triggered, and that triggered it, and just turned into a nationwide protest against the government, the system, if you will. Uh, so there are some similarities that I see there. Of course, there are some differences too. I mean, the killing of George Floyd was an unimaginable brutality. I mean, it was really, really evil. What triggered the Gezi Park protest was 
something less tragic. I mean, it was police gassing a group of peaceful environmentalist protesters in the park. And I think in the United States, there is 400 years of slavery and discrimination against African-Americans. So there's a deeper history there. In Turkey, you could argue that, you know, the Gezi Park protests were against a government whose authoritarian colors were becoming visible, but you can speak of a deep history there as well. Um, on the other hand, there are lessons from what happened. I mean, in, in Turkey, these Gezi Park protests went for about a month. And ultimately, if it left Turkey divided between people who saw the protests as a justified social reaction to authoritarianism versus people who perceived this as the anarchy created by vandals and looters and, and, and also maybe some foreign conspiratorial powers which were behind them. And President Erdogan, which uh, he was prime minister at the time, which represented and, and propagated the second view, came out ultimately stronger in criminalizing the protesters. There are still people in Turkey's jails who are blamed, quote unquote, for organizing Gezi Park protests. That in itself is deemed as a crime. And it was a chance for Turkey for, you know, for the rest of society to understand why the other part of society is angry. But ultimately, it just divided the society, and I would see the, I would hate to see the same thing happen in the United States. Yeah, so I, I spoke with Fabio Rojas uh, for the, the Cato podcast uh, a few days ago, and uh, his basic uh, takeaway was, look, whether or not you believe that violence is justified, some people do, uh, and uh, certainly I think you can make a strong case for that. Um, but whether or not it is justified, it is fundamentally a different question than whether or not it is a good strategy. I agree with that. I, I I'm in favor of nonviolent protests uh, and the right the right to do that. But when protests turn violent, first I would argue against that from a principled point of view, especially against private property. Uh, also, I don't think they're efficient. I mean, there are some people I see them on Twitter these days saying, "Oh, you know what? They only understand from violence. You know, looting makes people understand that we have a problem here." I think quite the contrary. Uh, violence protests, vandalism, looting of private property, shop stock, that kind of stuff delegitimizes the protest. And it helps those who want to delegitimize the whole idea behind it. This has happened in Turkey. For example, the Gezi Park protests were mostly peaceful. Uh, actually, there was, le less, there was less vandalism there that, that what I, than what I see in the U.S. these days. But there were some excesses. There were some uh, burning of police cars, destruction of some public property, some bank ATMs, some TV stations. And the pro-Erdogan propaganda machine, as I can call it, just focused on those. And you were seeing that all the time. And these are violent looters and destructors and so on and so forth. That helped delegitimize the much broader element, which was really peaceful and which was just trying to make its voice heard. So I think I mean, th that in itself is just one lesson for any protest movement around the world is that by uh, going violent, by, by uh, passing that threshold, you are not helping your cause. What is your advice then for uh, protesters, organizers, or just uh, average people who are very concerned about police brutality and how they ought to go about uh, their protest? Well, first of all, define 
what do you want to achieve? You're angry and you're expressing your anger. That's legitimate. But merely expressing your anger, especially if it becomes counterproductive, is not a strategy. Try to also try to understand that by these protests, what you should achieve is to broad is to win the broad sympathy of society. There are people who are not maybe aware of the police brutality, of racism and things like that. So by your protests, you want to reach out to those people to, sh to show those people that there's a real problem here so you can, you can also influence their conscience. But if you do this in a way that you're actually condemning those people, condemning, condemning the broader society and looking as if you're threatening them, you're not going to achieve anything. Uh, also, make make your make your goals clear. What do you want to achieve? Tearing down the system. Well, that is not a goal, right? I mean, what does it mean? Uh, say, like, we want to have these goals fulfilled. For example, there's a great idea that the Cato Institute has been advocating for many years. That is uh, abolishing the idea of qualified immunity. I mean, the legal sh shield or unlawful shield, as Cato. Uh, defines it. It gives police officers the uh, blank check, you know, to behave in the way they want, and then they can get away uh, thanks to that from legal prosecution. Things like this say, well, we want qualified immunity to abolish. We want these things to be done. So these are the legal demands that we have so that people can look at these and say, yes, this makes sense, and you can go forward. But if you're just expressing anger and in a counterproductive way, then I think you're not helping yourself. So, um, you know, when watching these protests from the United States in other parts of the world, it, it, you know, we don't see a lot of pictures from those other parts of the world otherwise. And so it, it's easy, I think, for Americans to look at that uh, uh, violence or massive protests in other parts of the world and, and look at it and say, well, Gosh, that looks like a very violent part of the world. It is indeed. I mean, uh, I should say this. I mean, as someone who's been advocating the right uh, for free expression, including uh, public protests and nonviolent ones, I've always pointed to the U.S., pointed to the U.S. As you see, it works in America. Anybody, anybody can march in America, regardless of their ideology, whether they're far right, far left, whatever, or they're condemning the government. In front of the White House, you can condemn the White House, I mean, the person sitting there, the president. So there is this great American tradition of allowing expression. And if this is curtailed uh, today, and that can happen by extreme behavior on both sides, and because I think public protests, when they turn violent, they uh, provoke a harsh response from the authorities, and that turns into a vicious silence, a vicious cycle. If America cannot manage to, you know, go through this period with peaceful protests uh, legally allowed and some social progress taking place out of that, then we will have not a great example anymore to point out. Uh, and I think there will be a lot of whataboutism. A lot of authoritarian regimes will say. You know what? You want our opposition figures to walk freely in the streets of America. They don't allow that even in America. Uh, or they will say people criticize us for cracking down on uh, public rallies. This, the same thing is happening 
in the so-called land of freedom. So there will be a lot of propaganda based on that. Actually, I see this. I mean, I see, for example, the Iranian regime, the Chinese regime, making tongue-in-cheek statements, saying that uh, we are concerned about the uh, safety of uh, protesters in American streets. I mean, they are hypocritical because they don't allow any protests, even peaceful ones. But I think America should not give them that propaganda resource. It's certainly unfortunate that uh, violent protest in the United States is feeding uh, the propaganda machines of these other countries. But do you have a sense of how average people look at the United States? Of course, there are protests on behalf of what's going on in the United States in other countries as well. So, so how are people? You know, do you have a sense of how the the median person in those other countries views what's going on here? I mean, I've seen in Turkey that uh, in for some of the supporters of the government and the pro-government media has been quite sympathetic to the protests here uh, because they're putting this as evidence of the injustice of the American system. You know, African-Americans, Black people are being persecuted in America, they're discriminated against, and now they are rising up, and that's a great thing. So they're putting it that way. The funny thing is that when they look their look at their own protests, they would depict the same thing as a conspiracy, a conspiracy by America, by the CIA. Uh, I mean, one of the most interesting aspects of the Gezi Park events is that the people who joined the protests thought they are protesting authoritarianism. But the government, President Erdogan, who was prime minister at the time, and his all the media who supported him, depicted this as a pre-planned conspiracy by the Western intelligence services, by the German Lufthansa, because supposedly Lufthansa was obsessed with the Turkish new airport uh, that was being built, or by George Soros, you know, all these conspiratorial imagined powers out there. Uh, and now it is funny that I see those same people uh, saying that, you know, they support the protests in, in the United States. So there is a hypocrisy there. Other people, I think, uh, see the fact that Americans can walk peacefully in their streets. They can say whatever they say to the president, to the authorities, and probably they admire that. But I think there's a lot of spinning going on, I think, by authoritarian regimes. Uh, and that idea, by the way, of, a, of protest as conspiracy is the hallmark of authoritarian regimes. Uh, China does that, you know, to crack down on its opposition movements. Iran does that. We see that a lot of that in Turkey. Uh, and and I'm afraid to see similar narratives in the United States too. Oh, who's behind these protests? Oh, George Soros and this and that. Uh, well, you should try to understand why these things are happening rather than building a conspiracy around it. Uh, the fact that there are wrong elements in the protests doesn't you know make it a big conspiracy you should you, sh you should still understand that there is a social dimension to it i think that's the lesson people i think from looking more on the right in america should see on the other hand people who are more on the left should understand that uh, protests are legitimate and there's a legitimate case here but if they just say violence is good it tears down the system they will not be achieving anything. They will be harming society uh, and, and their own cause as well. 
Mustafa Akiol is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. President, many members of Congress, and various heads of media outlets still don't really seem to understand the rights and responsibilities of speakers and platforms on the internet. Cato's Matthew Feeney and I discussed the ongoing fight about what's known colloquially simply as Section 230, a portion of the Communications Decency Act that supporters call the 26 words that created the internet. The president of the United States uh, has been in a bit of a row uh, with Twitter and how they've been treating him, especially recently. Uh, this comes sort of at the end of sort of a long-standing, I guess, claim by many mainstream self-described conservatives that sites like Twitter, like Facebook, uh, and others are censoring conservative speech. And and three uh, U.S. senators in particular, that's Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, and Josh Hawley, have all said uh, in different ways that they want to crack down, in a sense, on uh, these platforms for how they do business. And sometimes it's wrapped up in the First Amendment. Other times it's uh, more uh, technocratic in terms of how they want to approach it. But give me your sense of uh, what these guys are saying, uh, and uh, how much water it holds. Right. Well, there's a, a a lot to unpack, and we could probably have you know a whole day of commentary on everything incorrect uh, prominent people have been saying recently. But I think it's it's fair to say that at the heart of what these particular lawmakers are saying is is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which was the target of President Trump's recent executive order. And it has prompted a, a wide range of commentary associated with public forums and publishers and platforms and how should we think about uh, companies like Twitter and Facebook. And uh, what's been interesting is to see uh, some U.S. senators who are actually educated lawyers are making fundamental mistakes about what this law uh, actually says and its implications. Uh, so, for example, uh, we can pick on uh, the Republican senator from uh, Florida, Marco Rubio, who uh, took to Twitter to say that uh, the law still protects social media companies like Twitter because they are considered forums, not publishers. Uh, and this is incorrect and I think reveals a, a rather common misunderstanding about the relevant law. Uh, which is worrying because these are powerful lawmakers considering legislation that could change the internet as we know it. Um, all that Section 230 uh, of the Communications Decency Act does is that it provides uh, websites like Twitter, Facebook, big and small, that uh, with two major protections. Uh, one is, that's that's crucially important is that it says uh, that these websites are not considered the publishers of content or the vast majority of content that users upload. And the second part of uh, the law that uh, it will be of interest is uh, that these sites are free to moderate content as they wish. What's important here is that there's no obligation on behalf of Twitter or Facebook to engage in neutral 
uh, political content moderation. Uh, such moderation does not make them a publisher. And in fact, there is no distinction in the law between publishers and platforms. In fact, traditional publishers like the New York Times also enjoy Section 230 protection uh, because they have a website where, where people can provide comments. And that comment section on the New York Times is a interactive computer service covered by Section 230. In addition, Twitter can be considered the publisher of content if it's something that Twitter publishes or posts, like the fact check of President Trump. So this is a, a fundamental confusion that unfortunately got retweeted something like 23,000 times, uh, but that doesn't make it any less false. So uh, I should have mentioned Lindsey Graham. He's a part of uh, this group as well in terms of wanting to crack down on uh, social media companies. So uh, for that, for his part, uh, what has Josh Hawley proposed? Josh Hawley is probably the most prominent critic of so-called big tech in, in the Repu among Republican senators. Uh, he's he's proposed uh, legislation uh, that would uh, force. Uh, that would require uh, Section 230 protections for large internet companies uh, be contingent on political neutrality. The idea here is that once you get big enough, you only get Section 230 protection if the FTC has decided that you're sufficiently politically neutral. Uh, which is which is sort of an astonishing proposal if you think about the power that it gives an alphabet soup agency, which are traditionally the kind of agencies Republicans abhor. Uh, it's also very worrying because it means that that websites of a certain size would presumably have to uh, accept content they would otherwise moderate. Uh, we should keep in mind that uh, the, the U.S. First Amendment uh, allows for a wide, wide range of uh, legal but also reprehensible speech that a lot of private companies want to distance themselves from. Uh, some of it can be political. So uh, the Nazi party uh, oftentimes uh, produces legal content that many people find abhorrent. Uh, there's also legal content uh, like pornography or images of people being murdered. Uh, all, all of this is legal, but nonetheless, uh, the kind of content that people would like to moderate. And Section 230 allows websites like Facebook, Twitter, but also tiny tiny websites and also uh, anyone who runs a blog with a comment section to moderate that without risk of uh, civil liability. All right. So uh, in the president's uh, row with Twitter specifically, uh, this week, uh, as of this recording, we're recording on a Friday, the president was complaining about the fact that Twitter put a fact check link below uh, a, a tweet that he he posted, and he's calling this censorship. Right, uh, the president is wrong. Um, it's 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 an interesting debate that uh, uh, that the president is having having these days. Um, so, one, it's very odd to portray someone questioning your assertion as a form of censorship. Uh, if I say that the sky is green and you say it's blue, uh, you're not censoring me. I'm still allowed to say that the sky is green. Uh, the President Trump is not a fan of people uh, criticizing or correcting him, uh, and this is uh, no exception. Uh, it is not remotely uh, censorship to issue a fact check, but we should also be careful about using the word censorship in the context of Twitter actually removing content. Uh, Twitter is, is not a government. Uh, it is a private American company, uh, and they are free to associate with uh, any kind of speech they want, uh, as allowed under Section 230. 
Uh, although I should stress, and something that that I think is oftentimes overlooked, is that even absent two thirty, uh, this the, the freedom of association would still exist, and the First Amendment would still exist. So it's not as if absent Section two thirty all social media companies would have to allow all First Amendment protected content. In fact, if you remove Section 230, the the irony is you would have far less conservative speech. Uh, If Twitter were potentially liable for every tweet that the president issued, it would be much, much more sensible for them from a legal and financial point of view just to delete the account. Uh, what 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 I think many people, and this gets to Marco Rubio's tweet, are confused about is that uh, these social media sites aren't public forums in the way that uh, we should be thinking about them. That they're, they're private companies; they're allowed to associate with whoever they want. Uh, and to portray a fact check as censorship is uh, just incorrect. And I can't believe we have to go through this, but I've seen it so many times posted: uh, the notion that because Twitter is a public company. That is to say, they sell shares to uh, individuals and institutions that this does not allow them uh, to operate in the way that they've been operating. Wait, have you actually seen people say that? (laughs) I'm afraid so, yes. Wait, so wait, the argument seriously that because it's called a public company? <laughs> yes, have- I'm, Matthew, I'm, I'm going to keep all this in. But yes, that's I have I've seen that. I've seen that labeled said a bunch of times. Um, I well, look, uh, that's uh, <laughs> one 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 doesn't know where to begin with, <laughs> with someone like that. No, um, look, uh, that there are certain labels attached to these companies uh, for investment purposes, and you know shares you can buy, and whether those are behind closed doors or public, if anyone is allowed to buy shares. Uh, but no, these uh, uh, Twitter is a private company. It's not owned by the government. It's owned by uh, private entities and institutions. Um, it's gone. The, the fact that something might be called a publicly traded company has absolutely no bearing on that designation for the purposes uh, that we're having this conversation about. So what of the notion, and I think the president alluded to this in uh, a tweet or two complaining about Twitter, uh, that this is advocacy? Uh, well, I, I would say a couple of things about that. One is, uh, there's so much content on a lot of the social media sites, uh, something like 400 hours worth of content is uploaded to YouTube every minute. There are hundreds of millions of, uh, tweets posted per day that anyone will be able to find advocacy and content moderation if they're looking for it. In fact, uh, it might come as news to some conservatives, but, uh, uh, many people on the political left also have their complaints about, uh, many of these firms and their content moderation policy. Uh, so one, I would say we should be hesitant to accept claims of anti-conservative bias uh, in the, the Silicon Valley content moderation debate. But I would also say if it is advocacy, so what? Uh, these are private companies who are allowed to advocate if they feel like it. Um, if, if Mark Zuckerberg woke up tomorrow and said anyone who has ever liked uh, Donald Trump's Facebook page is is removed, it would be an unwise business decision and it would be an unwise PR move, but it would certainly be allowed. So going forward, I mean, what do you see as the big risks? He is uh, the president has uh, laid out this uh, executive order that he signed as of this recording. It was yesterday. Um, sub- substantially, what's in it? Well, the, the the executive order itself, I think, is actually uh, very weak and unworkable. Uh, it's is the result of uh, Donald Trump uh, being upset about what uh, Twitter is doing. Uh, it is. You know, it's 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 kind of funny because uh, it, part of it is 
the executive branch asking an independent agency to do something, which is uh, sort of runs against what uh, the point of an independent agency is. Uh, so when it comes to actually the substance of this executive order, I'm not uh, too worried about it. But however, what I am worried about is that this is the kind of news that provides fuel to people like Senator Hawley and Senator Cruz and Senator Graham uh, and other critics of of Section 230 who could use the EO as an opportunity to uh, introduce other legislation to amend Section 230. We should remember that Section 230 has been amended before. Uh, and it uh, the Sesta Foster, for example, was a, an amendment to 230 focused on content associated with human trafficking. Uh, Senator Graham is currently uh, discussing the so-called Earnit Act, which is uh, a, a bill that, broadly speaking, would uh, make Section 230 protections contingent on certain activities associated with uh, images of, of child sexual exploitation. And of course, no one wants to even be portrayed as potentially being being associated with people who produce that kind of material. Uh, but I do worry that in the long run, uh, this kind of EO just provides more opportunities for people to uh, amend a law that is crucial for the free flow of ideas in the modern internet age. And I, I worry that even uh, people who uh, perhaps are motivated to amend 230 because of uh, an understandable concern for people who are victims of abuse, uh, we should, of course accept the fact that that kind of abuse is horrific while also being wary of uh, the, the kind of proposals that we see with legislation like the Earnit Act. Um, the Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act is a federal statute. We have the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution uh, that contains a myriad rights. Um, how important is Section 230? Section 230 is very important. Um, in fact, uh, Eric Goldman, who was who is a, a law professor at Santa Clara, has a great paper explaining why actually uh, Section 230 is better than the First Amendment in many ways because it provides uh, legal certainty for for parties and and reduces uh, the cost of litigation and and that's all very very valuable. Um, we shouldn't forget, of course, though, that it is a federal statute. It can be repealed. It can be amended. Uh, of course, um, removing the First Amendment would be a much much more difficult task. Uh, but we shouldn't forget that that the First Amendment is is a bedrock of American uh, speech law. But it's been approved upon. Uh, a, many, many times. The, the the problem I think that, that many people have is that they think if you just repealed Section 230 that suddenly the internet would become awash with uh, previously uh, removed conservative speech. And that that's not true. Uh, the, 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 the whole point of, of Section 230 was to try and find a way so that we could have valuable third-party content, have people contribute to the internet without the hosts of that content being legally liable. And I think it's a very innovative and uh, worthy law. Uh, but unfortunately, the left and the right both have complaints about it, and uh, I don't see that ending anytime soon. Matthew Feeney directs the Cato Institute's Project on Emerging Technologies. The coronavirus pandemic has stressed all sectors of the economy. Universities are not immune. With enormous uncertainty about the virus weighing heavily on university administrators, what should the fall of 2020 look like on college campuses? 
Emily Chamley Wright, the president of the Institute for Humane Studies, says that right now is the time to innovate. You mentioned learning, and uh, for businesses, for universities, for our individual interactions with each other, there is a massive amount of learning that has to occur to get back to a semblance of normal. Uh, and I, I think you would agree that uh, a top-down uh, mandates from governors, from presidents, um, is just not going to be particularly helpful in trying to uh, achieve that learning. There are some things that government can do in a moment of crisis. And uh, as you know, Caleb, a lot, a lot of my background is in post-disaster research. And one of the things that we learned is that one of the most important things that government can do is to reduce the amount of uncertainty that private actors in civil society and business are facing. And we're not we're not seeing that reduction of uncertainty coming um, from the corners of government, e either at the state level or at the at the um, federal level. But the other thing that government can do is when they when they are able to have some kind of policy intervention, the guiding principle should be one where it allows it where it is able to move quickly. And it's it's doing the thing that it has the comparative advantage at doing. And it should be aimed at tapping the capacity of markets in civil society. So an example of that, like of, of that in this case, probably is in the arena of testing. That that if we flood the environment with uh, testing not only for COVID-19, but also for antibodies, what that does, why that would be so valuable is it gives people operating within the private sector much needed information to know how they need to modulate their behavior. It also lets us know who, who among us can actually be put into play to provide capacity to the market, to provide capacity to the voluntary sector. So government can do some things that are valuable, but it should be those things that it has a unique capability of doing quickly and at scale. So uh, for universities, uh, you wrote a couple of pieces sort of talking about disasters and recovery and the unique role, at least with respect to Katrina, that Walmart played. So what do we have to learn from uh, Walmart's assistance and post-Katrina, uh, the South? Uh, what do we have to learn from that? That story is such an important story to Katrina's, uh, to the post-Katrina recovery of a community of communities like Waveland, Mississippi, where the uh, manager of the supercenter there, the Walmart supercenter, uh, was within a business community where he was a major player in that business community. Businesses were wiped out in the wake of, of, of the storm surge that hit the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And so he was recognizing that people needed an anchor to come back to that community. They needed not only the goods and services, the basic supplies that a Walmart could provide, what they needed was the signal that normal life could return. And it's in this sense that university presidents are like that Waveland, Mississippi Walmart manager, where if they can figure out how we can 
come back, what that does is it provides direct ser services, but it also sends the signal that normal life can return again. Now it's going to be different. When they opened up Walmart, it was in their parking lot, not, you know, it was under a tent initially. So we might have something similar going on with in-person instruction in the fall, but it takes that kind of innovative, creative response that comes from the bottom up. And that sort of, there is a role for leadership to play in, particularly in disaster moments, but that leadership really comes from below. And so I believe that there is an analogy here for, for uh, communities that have large employers. Oftentimes, uh, colleges and universities are a major employer within their communities. If they can figure out the mix that allows them to come back, that sets a strong signal that normal life can return, but it also gives us that context for the learning that you just talked about. Emily Chanley-Wright is the president of the Institute for Humane Studies. In an election year, grand promises are made on both sides of the aisle, but can the government really do that? The Cato Institute's pocket constitution keeps the principles of individual liberty and limited government set forth in America's founding documents close at hand. The distinctive faux leather cover and gold foil stamped lettering makes it one of the most popular editions available. It also makes it the perfect gift. You can buy individual copies online nationwide or in packs of 10 exclusively at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.